please take your Bibles and open to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. So today we begin our new sermon series on the letter of 1 John. Now I'm really excited about diving into this letter with you um, over the coming weeks. Um, I have read a lot the last two to three weeks about 1 John. I'm going to give you about 0.5 of 1% of everything that I've read. Amen? You might not want it all, okay? And so, but it's been a joy to dive in and to learn. And so as we begin, as is so important with every new study, I want to give you some of the contextual information that you need to know as you come to this letter of John, okay? Now, this is a letter of John, okay? This is, we call this 1 John. This is the, the, the disciple that wrote the fourth gospel, the disciple who calls himself the one beloved of the Lord or the disciple whom Jesus loved. He also wrote the book of the Revelation and the other two epistles here. So this is one of the main authors of your New Testament. Now, even though this letter of 1 John doesn't actually bear his name, like if you read it, it's not like a normal letter where Paul begins his letters by saying, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and goes on. This letter doesn't begin, I, John. It doesn't actually name himself. We can be confident, though, that he wrote it for several reasons, okay? Here, let me give you a couple of reasons. The first is that the language and vocabulary of this letter of 1 John is remarkably similar to the fourth gospel. If you read them both carefully, you can tell they use the same phrases, the same terminology, the same language, and they cover a lot of the very same overlapping themes. There's also the internal evidence that this letter was written by an eyewitness of, that was intimate with Jesus and his ministry. The author claims himself to have seen Jesus with his eyes and touched him with his hands. Okay, Along with this, there's incredible external evidence that you need to consider that John is the author. The early church fathers, that's those that wrote very early in church history that were most, that many of them even were disciples of the apostles like John, all of them claimed that John was the author of this letter. That includes Polycarp, Irenaeus, Dionysius of Alexandria, Tertullian, and then three other church fathers of note, Papias, Eusebius, and Jerome, all quoted the other church fathers that John is the author, okay? So John's authorship, by the way, is also the reason that this letter was considered to be a part of the canon of the New Testament because it was written by an apostle, not someone else, okay? So for those that want to claim that John didn't write it, and there are very critical scholars who actually say that, the burden of proof is on them. You have to be able to discount all of early church history and all of those that claim to have known that John wrote this letter, okay? So we are just going to take the most reasonable assumption, and that is John wrote it, and it bears his name for a reason, okay? Even though he doesn't, his name doesn't appear at the beginning. So now let's consider the purpose of the letter, okay? Why does John write this letter? Every New Testament letter is written for a reason. It's written to address issues that need to be addressed, okay? Now... John is most likely writing this letter sometime between 85 and 88 to 89 A.D., okay? Most scholars consider that to be a reasonable date 
um, a date no later than 90 A.D. It was certainly written after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and it's considered a general epistle. Now, general means that it isn't written directly to a church, but it's, but it's written generally to believers in a certain area. Now, we know that John was ministering in Ephesus in Asia Minor during this time, and most likely that the letters there were being passed around to the churches of Asia Minor, and those are the same churches, by the way, that are mentioned in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. So those would be you know, places like Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. All of those are in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Okay, that's where the churches are located. All right, now the purpose of this letter goes like this. The purpose of this letter is to address a schism, a split in the church that was the result of false teachers. Okay, false teachers had come in and they were making certain claims and John is addressing that. Now most, um, that schism was due to a false teaching regarding the person and work of Jesus. Okay, most scholars believe that this false teaching was an early version of a heresy that is called Gnosticism, okay? Now, Gnosticism is from the Greek word gnosis. Um, it has to do with secret knowledge, okay? Not revealed knowledge by Christ and His Word, but secret knowledge, okay? And that secret knowledge would lead you to a higher spiritual plane. And so Jesus was one of those first people to get the secret knowledge. And now there's a select group of people who retain it. And it's not the apostles, by the way. It's us, and we have, the real, we have a real and right understanding of Jesus that is separate from the historical truths of Jesus. Okay, now, this secret knowledge would lead you to a higher plane. And it taught basically this. The flesh and the body are bad and evil, okay? The flesh and the body are bad and evil, but the soul and the spirit of a person is good, okay? So John is dealing with those that were teaching that Jesus didn't really come into the flesh as a human being, because Jesus is good, and Jesus, if Jesus is really good, then Jesus can't really be a human being with a real body. He must be some kind of spirit creature or something else like that. So coupled with that teaching, of course, as you can imagine, coupled with that came a lax attitude toward ethics, that what you did in the body doesn't really matter because it's the soul that counts. And so, of course, that led to rampant immorality among this group, okay? So a lax teaching towards repentance, obedience to Christ, and that's the issue. So the spirit's good, what we do in the flesh doesn't ultimately matter. Because the flesh cannot damage or hurt the soul. Now, I should just say on its face, that is completely antithetical to the biblical worldview of humanity. God created us body and soul, and God said that it was very good. Of course, sin has affected both. But in redemption, in Christ, both the soul and the body are being redeemed. And one day, Jesus will give us a new resurrection body. So God is not, Paul has to address this too, right? Paul says God is for the body. The body is not necessarily evil in and of itself, though it is corrupted by sin. So, John knows, and this is the point of the text, right? John knows that Jesus was a real human being, right? As we're going to get to in our text. So, John's purpose is going, he's going to address these issues head on. And as we go through the, this, this letter of 1 John, 
he's going to set out a series of tests. Like he's going to really test, like test, like examine yourself. Test yourself against the real claims of Jesus and the apostles and to see if you really are in Christ. So he's going to set up tests regarding who is Jesus, what, is ha- what does it mean to have fellowship with him and other believers, what does knowing Jesus have to do with our battles with sin and obedience, and ultimately how can we have assurance of salvation. Okay, so my subtitle, it might be on the screen, but my subtitle is That You May Know. That's our study of 1 John, That You May Know. If you go to 1 John 5, 13, this is what John says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's his purpose. That you may know that you have eternal life in Jesus. So he's writing that way. So from the beginning, we have to read this letter in light of John's purpose. Okay, John wants you to be assured of your eternal life in Jesus. He doesn't want you to run after false teachers. He wants you to have eternal life in the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, the one who died, the one who was buried, the one who was raised again, and who ascended to the right hand of the Father, and who one day will come again and bring his children home. Okay? So lastly, I want to make one little, last little note about John's writing. If you've read John, how many of you have read 1 John before? Oh, good. A lot of you have, okay? It's only five chapters long. You can go read it this afternoon, okay? I I encourage you to do that. John has a unique writing style. John is not a linear thinker like Paul who goes, here's the truth, steps one, two, three, four. Logical, linear, Paul is very, I like Paul. I think like Paul, a very logical, western, linear thinker, put things in order, argue, and move on. John doesn't do that. John talks about something, leaves it, comes back to it, makes a circle, does a victory lap, moves on, comes back again. He, he writes circularly, okay? And that drives Western thinkers crazy. But for Eastern, more Middle Eastern and Eastern thinkers, it makes a lot more sense. And so John writes in a way that is called symphonic. It's like watching a, a, listening to a symphony, and there's an overture that comes back. So he'll play the overture, then sing a little bit, and then he'll come back to this, and then he'll sing a little bit more, and then, hey, there's the overture again. And so that's, that's what you need to know. So it might drive you crazy, but we'll try to keep all that in mind as we do it. So, there you go. Introduction over. Amen. And all the people rejoiced. All right, so let's look at 1 John. We're going to look at the first four verses, and let's kind of see what John is about, okay? So here we go, the letter of 1 John. If you're there, say Amen. If you're not there, say shame on, my, shame on me, shame on me, okay, because we're here to read the Bible together. Let's make sure we pull it up on our phones or something. Here we go, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, John says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy 
may be complete. Now you should notice there, as I've said earlier, John really doesn't have a customary um, salutation like Paul or Peter's letters. He doesn't even identify himself or bring greetings. He just dives in to what is the main issue, and that issue is Jesus. So let's break this down, and I'm going to give it to you in two halves, okay? I want you to notice first that, that John is primarily concerned here with the proclamation of the word of life. The proclamation of the word of life. That's what he wants to proclaim. Now when you look at these first few verses of John, it's hard to tell in English, but in the Greek, the main verb that appears to us is we proclaim. That's the main verb of the first three verses. We proclaim. Now in English, that's all the way down in verse 3 especially in translations that are more literal. So if you have a literal translation, you don't get we proclaim to verse 3, um, even though in the Greek it's much more pronounced. Now that's appropriate. That's the appropriate place for Greek grammar in verse 3, but that causes some rough reading in English. So if we wanted to smooth it out and keep the focus on the main verb, this would be a smoother reading. Okay, so let me give you a smoother reading of the first three verses. We proclaim to you. That's where it begins. We proclaim to you that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard and we have seen, we've looked at, and we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. We proclaim. This is what John intends to do. He is writing to proclaim the word of life to us. Now the question is, what does he want us to know about the word of life? What, is, what exactly is John proclaiming? What is he seeking to correct in our understanding of Jesus. Three big truths. Three, okay? Three big things about the word of life. First, the word of life, John wants us to know, is the eternal Son of God. The word of life is the eternal Son of God. John opens by saying, you know, we proclaim to you that which was from the beginning. So that which was from the beginning. And then he gives a little more detail and says this word of life was with the Father. That's God the Father. Then he explicitly names Jesus as the Son at the end of verse 3. Now, if you've, read first John, if you've read the Gospel of John, you know that John begins his Gospel and this letter with very similar language. John 1.1 from the Gospel says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So in John's Gospel... The point is, no matter which beginning you think about, whatever beginning you ever want to think about, no matter how far back you can get your brain to think, the eternal Son of God was there with the Father. Okay? There was never a time, early in church history this was the saying, there was never a time when He was not. There was never a time when Jesus was not. He is the eternally begotten Son of God. As the Nicene Creed so eloquently puts it, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. And of course, they're writing there to combat a heresy of Arianism and also Gnosticism that Jesus was a created being. John says, no matter what beginning you go to, Jesus is there. There is not a time, there is not a time you could consider when he is not there. So the, the word of life is the eternal son of God, uncreated without beginning. Second, 
the word of life, that same word of life, was manifested in the flesh in time and history. The eternal Son of God was manifested in the flesh in time and history. So John goes on to belabor this very point, that Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and was manifested to people in time and in history. As he says in his gospel, in verse, chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So at a particular point in time, and in a particular place, and in a particular person called Jesus, the eternal Son of God was manifest to us. And John was an eyewitness of this manifestation. Notice all of the eyewitness language here that John employs. Look at all the eyewitness language. He says, I am proclaiming to you what we have heard, seen, looked upon, and touched. That's what eyewitnesses do. Okay? He's not simply talking about a message, but a person. Okay? This word of life, Jesus, was a real human being that was seen and known by other people. So hear me. What you are dealing with when you come to the Bible, especially the Gospels and letters like this, is you are not dealing with fairy tales or myths or legends or made-up stories. That is not what the Bible claims. What you have is you are dealing with authoritative eyewitness accounts of a historical figure named Jesus. So John is giving us his eyewitness testimony here as one who knew Jesus, as one who spoke to Jesus, walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, traveled with Jesus, listened to Jesus, learned from Jesus, loved Jesus, was loved himself by Jesus, the one who reclined at the table with his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, the one who literally heard the beating of Jesus' heart, head on his chest. Do you get the picture? The one who the one who saw and witnessed Jesus' death because he was the only disciple that didn't run and hide. John. Okay? The one who outran Peter to the tomb after the resurrection and spoke personally with the resurrected Christ for weeks before Jesus' ascension and witnessed the ascension. Saw the angels, heard them say, the same Jesus you saw go up, you'll see him come in the same way. So here, John's proclamation, unlike the false teachers, is an authoritative proclamation based on first-hand eyewitness testimony. That's what this is, okay? And by the way, Peter and Paul also stand on the ground of being eyewitnesses to the historical Christ and his resurrection. In Acts 4, it says this about Peter and John. So the, the, the religious leaders are tired of them preaching the resurrection. and they call, So it says they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So quit talking about Jesus. We're going to throw you in prison. And this is what they say. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot speak but of what we've seen and heard. We saw it. We, we can't deny what we've seen and heard. And when Paul instructs the Corinthians about the gospel, 
he argues by using historical eyewitness language. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this. He said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word, unless you believed in vain. He says this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he appeared to Peter and the twelve. Then he appeared to 500 brothers at one time, most of whom who are still alive. You can go talk to them. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Paul is an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Now, all of these disciples, hear me, this is so important. All of these apostles, these that were witnesses of the resurrection, all of them died for their adamant assertions that they saw and were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Okay? All of them were put to death for it. Now, John was tried, he, they tried to put John to death. They ended up exiling him on Patmos. That's where he died. He was the last, apostle that, the last apostle to die. But when they went to trial, all they had to do was say that they had made up the story and recant, and they would not have died. They would not have been put to death. Okay, But instead, they joyfully and willfully gave up their lives, lives because they saw eyewitnesses they, they were eyewitnesses of the historical Jesus whom they knew had conquered the grave and ascended into heaven. And so they knew that death was not the end. So they didn't fear it. Now, you could say here if you were a skeptic, and many skeptics do, you might say, well, listen, a lot of people die for what they believe in. Is that true? Yes, of course a lot of people will die for what they believe in. Um, every, every suicide bomber dies for what they believe in. They're willing to die for what they believe in. But here's the difference. There's a difference in dying for what you believe in and dying for what you know to be false. Think about that. Are you going to die for your claim in the resurrection if you know he's dead? What, what gain do you get from that? It's not like the apostles were making a lot of money. It's not like they were getting a lot of political uh, prestige from it. I mean, Rome is killing Christians left and right. It's not really a good time to be a Christian, right? So, lots of people. Listen, what you never see is people joyfully and willfully dying for what they would know to be false. The disciples knew Jesus had died. They knew he had been buried. They knew Pilate and the religious leaders knew it as well. And they were terrified, by the way, of being killed themselves. So they hid away after the crucifixion of Jesus for fear of themselves being arrested and killed. So something had to happen to move them from fear of death to joyful and willful embracing of it for the sake of Jesus. So John is proclaiming the word of life who was manifested, who is the eternal Son of God, was manifested in the flesh in time and history in the person of Jesus that John knows. And third, the word of life, he, John wants us to know that the word of life he's proclaiming gives eternal life. He's the eternal Son of God, he's manifested in the flesh in time, and he gives eternal life, right? This life, he says in verses 2 and 3, this life was with the Father and with the Son and has been given to us, John is proclaiming to us, eternal life through the word of life. 
Now John, if you were to study his gospel again, makes this point over and over and over again, right? He makes it over and over again, not because John is making it up that the word of life gives eternal life, but because Jesus himself makes that very claim, right? John 1.4 says, in him Jesus was life. He says this because Jesus, had, Jesus says in John 5, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus goes on in John to call himself the water of life. And if you drink of me, you'll never thirst. I'm the bread of life. If you eat of me, you will never hunger. He goes on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you cannot come into fellowship with the Father except through me. He goes on to say that I am the resurrection and the life, that if you are in me, though you die, yet shall you live forever. He even says about the enemy, he says, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life. Jesus says to his, he says, I am the good shepherd. He says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life. It's the main theme of John's gospel. So the word of life gives life, gives eternal life to all who come to him by faith. Abundant life now and forever in Christ. But here's the deal. Here's where the rubber meets the road. You have to know this Jesus to have eternal life. This Jesus, the one John is talking about, not the one that the Gnostics are talking about, not the one that, the, that these false teachers are talking about. You have to know and be in relationship with this Jesus, the historical Jesus. You have to know this Jesus to have eternal life. Jesus says again in John's gospel, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is found in a person named Jesus. To have the wrong Jesus... The Jesus of your own making, or the Jesus of the Gnostics, or the Jesus of fairy tales, or to have the wrong Jesus means you do not get eternal life. Because eternal life is only found in the word of life that John is being proclaimed to you. Because that false Jesus doesn't exist. He doesn't have life. So eternity, by the way, and you you might have heard me say this, eternity is a long time to be wrong. Wouldn't you agree? It's okay to be wrong for a week or a two or a day or with my wife every day. It's okay to be wrong. Eternity's a long time to be wrong. Amen? Eternity's a long time to be wrong, so you need to make sure that your faith is in the Jesus that is revealed in the Scriptures to us. Okay? To have the wrong Jesus is to not have eternal life. Okay? So, that is That is John's purpose. He is writing here so that you can have assurance of eternal life in the historical Jesus that he absolutely knows. So John begins with the proclamation of the word of life, the eternal Son of God manifested in the flesh, in time, bringing with him eternal life. And secondly and finally, and praise God, it's a short point. Point number two. He's proclaiming the word of life for the purpose of fellowship and joy. John is proclaiming the word of life. Look back at verses 3 and 4. Look what John says. He says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
Let me just say it as simply as I can and I'll conclude. John's proclamation of the gospel message, his proclamation of eternal life in Christ, is not simply limited to the language of salvation or being saved from sin or being born again, though that is absolutely essential and critical. John's proclamation also includes the necessity of fellowship and joy. Fellowship and joy. This fellowship is at the heart of the issue that John is writing about. If you follow the Gnostics and you abandon the historical Jesus, then you cannot have fellowship with the Father because you do not have fellowship with the Son. After all, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to what? No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you've, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you're in fellowship with me, you're in fellowship with the Father. Okay? So that is the heart of the issue. John is saying, if you walk away from this Jesus, then you have no fellowship with God. It is Jesus who brings us to God. And the fellowship, by the way, this fellowship is, uh, if you abandon Jesus, then you cannot continue in fellowship with Jesus' people. That we have fellowship together as a church because of Jesus. That's the issue. Okay? The fellowship John is describing here is shared with other spirit-filled, Christ-obeying, Christ-following believers. There is no fellowship with the Father without Christ. And without fellowship with Christ, there can be no lasting fellowship or unity with believers. So John doesn't want a unity at all costs. He's saying if you're going to leave Jesus, you, you, that's fine, but you're not going to remain in fellowship with us because we are Jesus' people. That's who we're following, that the church is made up of those following Jesus. That is the shared experience of Christians. Fellowship with God leads to fellowship with other believers. That's what it means. Fellowship with God leads to fellowship with other believers. And so if you are out of fellowship with other believers, then John is going to argue later on, then you can't, it's hard for you to argue that you're actually in fellowship with God because the gospel unites us to Christ and to each other. And he's going to explicitly draw that out. So, one of John's purposes in writing, as I close, is that we will all have complete joy. That means full joy or fulfilled joy, whole joy. And this is what that means. Are you listening? Completed joy, full joy, whole joy is the fellowship that the proclamation of the word of life Jesus creates among believers. It is full when we are in Christ together. Now, this is why that this is what that means. God intends for his children. Church, listen to me. God intends for his children to be the most joy-filled people on earth. That's what he intends for us to be. The most joy-filled people on earth. So, you, you write your own application of that as you grumble and complain all over social media the rest of the week. Where's your joy? Where is joy in Jesus, Right? The, word, the, the kingdom of God is about joy and fellowship in the Holy Spirit, okay? We are to share in the joy of Christ through His Spirit together as we share in the blessings of Christ and the gospel together. Listen, 
We should have joy because of Jesus' victory over sin, death, and hell. We should have joy in all circumstances. Joy even in our sorrows. Joy in our sickness. Joy even in suffering. Jesus creates fellowship among believers that should be tender, caring, compassionate, gracious, loving, and it should be the most joy-filled community on earth. And John cares deeply that they hold to Jesus because Jesus is the only thing that can hold us together. If you walk away from Jesus, which we know from the letter that many did, you won't have fellowship or joy that only Christ can produce in his people. So John's consideration here is the proclamation of the word of life for the purpose of joy and fellowship together. And that comes by knowing Jesus by faith, the Jesus of the Bible. So as I close, do you know Jesus? Not the Jesus of your imagination. I hear far too many people say, well, I'm okay with the man upstairs. Well, who is that? Who is it? Who are you going to meet one day? Are you going to meet the God of your imagination or the God that has revealed himself in Christ who says that you have to come to me by repentance and faith and walk in holiness, which John is going to argue. Do you know Jesus? And if you, are, if you do know Jesus, are you walking in fellowship and joy by staying in relation to Jesus and his people? Let's pray. Father, bless the preaching of your word. I pray that it has been encouraging, challenging, and ultimately it has shown us how to see Jesus more beautifully and more truthfully. So, Father, speak to us now. We pray this in Christ's name.